So I received a question on a little note, and I'm very happy about that because often people feel shy asking questions in public, and they feel maybe less shy of writing a little note and passing that on to me. If you are born in hell when you do a sin, why is the demon king Mara in hell more powerful than humans? Okay, I'm getting very serious straight away here, talking about hell. It's not the most uh, popular subject usually. If you Google, you will find more Dhamma talks on meta and kindness and about hell. But then the hell does, does exist according to the teaching of the Buddha. It's not just some fancy imagination or something. It's one of the uh, realms where one can be reborn. Usually we don't use so much the term sin, which has strong Christians' connotations, but we would use the term karma, and the term regarding rebirth in hell, we would obviously talk about really bad karma, not just a little bit, but the really serious stuff. So it is possible that a person who commits a serious bad karma killing, stealing, sensual misconduct, lying, alcohol and drugs, and so on, that they are reborn in hell as a result from the karma they have been doing. The second one is the demon king Mara, Maro Papima, the Mara, the evil one. And uh, the Buddha mentions Mara quite a bit. Uh, it's important to understand when the Buddha talks about Mara that it can have different meanings. It's actually quite similar to what one would call uh, Satan or the devil in uh, English, at least there are some similarities. And the one meaning of Mara is what you could call a Yaka Mara, and that refers to an external being. And there is actually a spirit called Mara, but there may be a little bit of misunderstanding. He's not so much in hell. The job of Mara is not mostly to organize or run hell, but Mara is all over the place. So from the hell to um, Peter Loka, hungry ghosts, animals, humans, and then all the different levels of the central heavens, there are six of them. And he's usually considered to be mostly located as the ruler of the highest central heaven, six level above the human world. And he may still get into the first Brahma Loka a little bit. But those who are in deep samadhi, when they are reborn in deep samadhi, or if they attain samadhi in the human body, then uh, Mara has no access to them. But below the Brahma Loka, the Brahma Loka is a very high devas, a very high angels, who have uh, overcome sensuality. At least they have suppressed sensuality for a long time. And they are reborn in, the, in basically samadhi states, where the heart is internally unified and they're experiencing rapture and bliss 
for billions of years, for eons even. So you can't access that. But all the other Deva Lokas below and the human world, Mava, can actually access it. And he has described of all the beings as the most influential or most powerful. And it's actually not so unusual that a spirit is more powerful than a human. The question seems to imply that a human should be more powerful. But that is not the case. Particularly in their own realm of existence, some spirits can have a tremendous power. It's not that a human is naturally more powerful than a spirit. Although it would be different if a spirit tries to come into the human world and then influence you, that's very difficult for them. But within their own dimension, they can have great powers. And spirits can, for example, usually move from one place to the other just by thinking, just like you can send your mind anywhere you want. And for spirits, they usually will be right in the place they are thinking about. And they may have other psychic powers. So spirits can be very powerful. However, when they come into the human world, it's usually very difficult for them to influence a human being in a physical sense. They usually can't physically harm you. On the other hand, most humans would be completely incapable of moving into the world of a spirit and to a different dimension, different realm of existence. Unless you have great psychic powers based on samadhi, humans usually can't do it. However, the crucial one is that even with all the power Mara or other spirits have got, the most powerful thing is karma, the kamma, K-A-M-M-A in Pali or K-A-R-M-A in the Sanskrit version. Now, the law of the results of good and evil actions. And Mara or Anyone in the world, not even the Buddha, no one can overrule that. So if anyone, any human being, ends up being reborn in hell, that doesn't mean that Marva had the ability to force him there. If you keep the precepts and you practice generosity and you have faith in karma and rebirth and you have faith and confidence in the Buddha and the Triple Gem, that you will be reborn in a good place. And no Mara or anyone could force a person who has got the good karma of going into a heavenly existence or going into human rebirth as a happy human. No one has the karma, uh, the power to overrule that. So the beings who are being reborn in hell, they are not there because Mava can force him there, or any other spirit. It's due to their karma, due to their actions, and the law of the results of actions. And you need not to have done very bad actions and an insufficient amount of good actions to counter them in order to be born in hell.
over what Mara can do, he can try to influence you a little bit. A little bit like what other humans can do. And no human being has a power not to send you to hell if you're a good person. But some human beings may tempt you or seduce you to do evil actions. Don't you like to come out? We go and uh, have a nice fun night out partying drugs and alcohol. Have another glass, have a whiskey, and then you may follow that. So that power Mada has got and other beings like humans have that as well. And we influence each other. So in that sense, Mava is powerful and he can try to tempt you, to seduce you, to make suggestions, to frighten you. However, as there are many beings, Mara is usually not interested in you unless you're getting close to enlightenment. He's a real control freak. And if you get enlightened, then you are out of his control forever. He can never reach you again. And in fact, already when you attain samadhi, the internal blissful unification of mind, then it's said they have blindfolded him. So he doesn't like that. If you get close to samadhi or close to awakening, the deep insight, eliminating the attachments and kilesas, then he may try to disturb by making a loud sound or something like that, or presenting a vision. So his power is limited in trying to influence you to make bad karma, and the real power is with the karma. And if you don't listen to any suggestions, have another drink, let's go fishing. That child will be really, really difficult for you. Your career will be limited. If you have that child, you better abort it. If you listen to that kind of suggestions, you may end up making really bad karma. And then the karma has got the power to get you into a bad rebirth. Join the army. The advertisements can look quite um, appealing. You're not going to make much good karma by joining the army. And then these suggestions, they come from everywhere. It doesn't have to be martyr. It's usually in uh, friends and other human beings. However, the Buddha also uses Mada in a purely metaphorical sense. And depending on the context, and it's sometimes not 100% clear, you have to investigate a little bit. And Mara as Machu Mara is a symbol of death. Just like in Western tradition, you have got the, the Grim Reaper, the skeleton with the scythe, now, this is just a, it's not like an existing being. 
but is simply a symbol, a metaphor for death. And in many instances, the Buddha uses Mara simply to remind us of our mortality. Then he also uses Mara in the sense of Kilesas. Kilesas are the defilements in our mind. Like greed, hatred, delusion, jealousy, conceit, laziness, anger, lust, negligence, envy, and so on. Now all these negative emotions and desires we have. And the Buddha uses Mara as a symbol for that, as a metaphor. And you already may notice that sometimes it can become difficult to fully distinguish that. Because Mara, the spirit outside, can only really exert any power in you together with the kilesas, with the defilements in your heart. In the Buddha, or any of the great Arahants, where greed, hatred, delusion is completely exterminated, and Mara can't do anything. There's no power. So in a sense, the internal meaning is more important. That is more important. And without any external spirit, just the defilements in our heart, anger, hatred, delusion, greed, can get us into big trouble and get us reborn in hell. That doesn't need any Mava. On the other hand, the Mava trying to do anything will always need the support of the Kilesas in your heart. I think maybe you have a meaning a different being that is Yama, the king of the dead, sometimes called. And he is holding the judgment. There's actually a fascinating uh, similarity over different religions. They almost all have that. Some time ago, a relative of a monk I know, she had a near-death experience. She was in hospital and had a very complicated operation, and then she was clinically dead for a time. And uh, in her experience, what she later could remember and related to her family, that she ended up at the pearly gates. That is a bit more a question, kind of metaphor. Now, all the religions will have you know, their own um, different details, how it exactly presents. And the Christians have this pearly gate, and then you may have you know, St. Peter's or someone and they're checking you out in the big book, whether you get access to heaven, or whether you get sent to a bad place. In her case, it was, she was told that it wasn't time yet, and she was sent back into a human body. And the Buddhist tradition has that as well, with King Yama. And it's said that after they have passed away, the spirits of the departed ones, now they come to this judgment scene and this demon king Yama is sitting in judgment. 
And just like at the pearly gates, and exactly the same thing, you can't read. Sometimes people try not to mention that there being questions, what they have done, have they done good things, have they done bad things. And just like in a normal court, in the human world, some people try to cheat and to lie. But you can't do that, because it's all in the book. And then you get sent according to what has been registered in the book. And again, indicating what is registered in the book, so to speak, and as a metaphor, is in your mind, is your karma. So even Yama, the so-called um, king or judge of the departed ones, again, he doesn't really have power. Because according to what you really have done, and it's only revealed in that judgment scene. And again, you have that in all traditions. And usually, depending on the cultural background, you know, the details will differ. Uh, if it's in the Tibetan tradition described, you know, they will use all the Tibetan kind of deities. If it is just some tribe in Africa, you know, they will use you know, their kind of spirits and describe you know, a similar scene. But it's basically the same thing happening. And it is fascinating if you read near-death experience. Has any one of you ever read about near-death experience? People who are clinically dead, then they get uh, resuscitated, and sometimes you know, they have amazing memories of the time when they were clinically dead. And some of them have what is called a life review. They see their whole life like played in super fast motion, but including every detail. And in particular, some will get even the meaning or the impact their actions had on others. And that seems to be similar to this judgment scene, what goes in that direction. Because Amazingly, there's this faculty in our mind which understands and knows what is good and bad, which is why we have usually a bad conscience if we do something bad. We usually know, isn't it? It's a fascinating quality of what we call in a conscience. Conscience can tell us quite clearly. And on the other hand, if we have a clear conscience, if we haven't done anything bad, now you feel very elated, very happy. And there's some faculty, you know, like a little accountant in our heart, you know, who keeps track of all our actions. It's not just lost or gone. And it looks like you know, some people in your death experience, you know, they access that to some extent. And that brings us back, just like with Mara, can be an external spirit, but can also be the defilements in our heart, and the greed, anger, delusion. 
and sometimes it's not so easy to fully distinguish between external and internal and they operate together and I think it's the same with this judgment scene it's a different kind of looking at a different interpretation I think ultimately something happening in your mind and then may not project out as that scene but ultimately it depends on the karma you have in your heart I once read a fascinating report of these things from the Tibetan tradition before they had medical resuscitation it would be aware that people had this near-death experience but it has happened throughout history and the studies have been done there are cases in all cultures of people who were already on the funeral pyre or in the coffin and then suddenly they came back and already in earlier centuries they would report similar things and this was a case in Tibet where this woman was already several, <coughs> several days on the kind of funeral preparations when they do the chanting and everything and suddenly she came back alive again and she you know, reported what she had seen and it was quite similar that people would arrive at this judgment scene and was a fierce judge and they couldn't trick if they tried to go past or they tried to lie about what they have done or not done and it wouldn't be possible because it was all registered however then they had suddenly one very outstanding monk coming who had passed away and he came with a huge group of followers and when he arrived at the judgment scene because that monk was very pure he had this very bright radiance and all the little demons working for the judge of the departed and even the demon king, the judge, they got blinded and while they were blinded, many of the ones walking behind the monk, they were all sneaking through <laughs> while they were blinded and again, I think one can take that metaphorically now that is, a, if you have the real faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha of the enlightened ones that can kind of get you through that faith that can overcome even some bad karma is so powerful when the faith is strong this is why the Buddha made you that promise I mean, if someone asks this question you may be worried about getting into a bad rebirth but the Buddha made the promise that just sadha matang, pema matang just a sufficient amount of faith, of confidence, of conviction a sufficient amount of affection and devotion to the Buddha will already get you into Devaloka that's a little bit like this scene although I think if you have really a sufficient conviction and faith you probably would try at least your best to keep precepts and do some good things
But it still shows you know, that the power of that faith and conviction can really get you through that troublesome scene. And then this uh, Tibetan lay woman, after she had passed away, she saw something else. She saw a hermit monk, and apparently also very advanced in his practice. And he was actually not walking on earth, and he was walking through the air and spinning his prayer mill and doing his chanting and being completely absorbed in his chanting and radiating compassion and matter. And he just ended up walking through the air across the whole judgment scene. The judgment scene didn't even exist for him. And uh, I like to suggest if you are very advanced in your practice, for example, if you develop metta, the question, the next one is regarding metta, loving kindness. If you have developed that to a very high degree, you will just go straight to Brahma Loka and you will not even have a judgment scene because you are not judging yourself. If you want to put a more, what to say, in a psychological or internal interpretation on this external judgment scene, and we also have the faculty of judging and condemning in our heart. You may notice that when we meet people, we usually pass judgment. This person is good, this one is not so good, this one I like, this one is unbearable, with this one I don't want to have anything to do, this person I want to get close. Now this is not really matter. The loving kindness means wishing well to all beings without any distinction. Your son and the first bully in school, the, the same wishing well. A Buddhist monk or a good Buddhist practitioner and a fanatical terrorist, saints and sinners, and no distinction, loving kindness, wishing well. May you be well, may you be happy, may you be at ease, may you be free from anger, may you attain awakening, may you be healthy and completely without distinction, without separating. That is loving kindness. And if you have developed that to a high degree, you will be like this monk who was walking through the air, metaphorically. You will, after you pass away, and I'm convinced you will not even have a judgment scene. Because the whole concept of judging and condemning is kind of gone from your mind. And this is one quote which I even like from the Bible. The don't condemn that thou shall not be condemned, or don't judge that thou shall not be judged. Is that correct? This one, eh? 
and then not being a question, I still can subscribe to that, and it's simply from a psychological reality. Because if we condemn others, we also condemn ourselves. If you're really hard on others, you will also not fully accept yourself. It's the same as matter. If you really feel that you are no good and you can't really feel wishing well to yourself, you can't really do it to others. There has to be balance. That's a very important principle in the Dhamma. The whole thing about external and internal. They, they go together. And in order to have loving-kindness for others outside, you need to have loving-kindness for yourself inside. In order to forgive yourself, you've got to forgive others. This is why we do the forgiveness ceremony when we do the puja. Do you all do your puja every day? Little Buddha puja? Hmm, a little bit, not a very strong response. Vasa is a good time. That even if you just start with bowing three times, do you all have a Buddha statue? If you're worried about Mara, better put a Buddha statue in your home. <laughs> if you don't have one, get one. It's very easy in Australia. You can buy them anywhere. And then you can start by just once a day bowing three times. It's already a start. But once you bow three times, you can also do Namotasa three times. If you bow three times and do Namotasa three times, you can maybe also do the Itipiso, Swakato, and Supatipano, and then you already have a little Buddha Puja. And what is often included, Buddha Patigana to Achayantam Kalantari Sangvaditung Vabuddhi. By body, speech, or mind, whatever transgression I may have committed towards the Buddha, may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted, that in future there may be restraint regarding the Buddha. That's a common thing to include that in the Buddha Puddha. Now, why is it being done so often, asking forgiveness from the Buddha? The Buddha has attained Parinibbana. He would forgive you anyhow. How does that work? Can the Buddha forgive you your bad karma? My understanding, my interpretation, how that works, you forgive yourself. If you ask forgiveness often enough, it triggers something in your mind. It's not about the Buddha statue or some Buddha after Parinibbana and forgiving you. What really happens, in my opinion, the main thing is that we can forgive ourselves. If we can forgive ourselves, we can also forgive others. If we cannot forgive completely, maybe at least we don't condemn completely. 
maybe you still feel a bit upset, no, but you don't absolutely condemn anyone. Have you ever noticed it in your mind when you close the wall and this person is now beyond the pale and you're just completely rejecting them, so to speak? I suggest be careful because the judgment scene, the King Yama, may be exactly as strict as you are yourself because it may be in an internal reality. And if you are super strict and completely condemning people for the smallest things, that may be the King Yama you experience. You get a super strict judge. Maximum penalty for anything you may have done. If you're in your dealing with others and you're really strict but fair, then that is the King Yama you may be getting. And if you're really practicing clemency and forgiveness and you're very forgiving, now that is the King Yama you may experience yourself. And if your mind has moved completely beyond all judging and condemning, then you will not even have a judgment scene. You will just be reborn straight in Brahmaloka, radiating with bliss and loving kindness to all beings. Yeah. Exactly. Kayena Vacha Chitina Pamadina Mayakatang Achayankamami Manti Bori Panyatatagata. There may be different formulas. Our Pali here is a bit different, but it's exactly the same meaning. And if you constantly ask for forgiveness, it triggers something that you can forgive others and that you can forgive yourself. Because that is a big problem if we have bad karma and it's quite normal. Very few people are so saintly that they never make mistakes and commit some bad karma. But uh, if we have very strong bad conscience about it and we are blaming ourselves and we feel very guilty, that will drag us down once we pass away. Whereas if you can forgive yourself and others, that will lift you up. So maybe to summarize it, don't worry too much about King Yama and the judgment and Mara, but worry about your mind. This is what it all comes back to. And a lot of the usage, even when the Buddha talks about that, a lot of that is also reflecting internal psychological realities, the realities in your mind. And this is what is really powerful. Any power Mara has is only subsidiary to the defilements in the mind. You can only use those. And if you purify your mind, if you keep precepts, if you do good actions, if you develop loving kindness, 
no Mava or any Vanna can cause you a re bad rebirth. It brings us. Oh, yeah, yeah, please. Yesterday we were young, today we are old. Why do we have to endure so much pain? Now there could be different answers. One condition, one necessary condition for that pain of getting old is that you are born in a human body. Could you get old if you didn't have a body? Without a body, could you get old? Not really, ne? Does it feel like your mind is really old? When you go back, when you were a teenager in school? Exactly. Now the mind, the mind is actually not really aging there. One can sense that. There's no big difference. Only this discrepancy and gets worse as we get older. The mind still sometimes feels very much the same like when I was young. But the body that gets old on us. So the aging is an affair of the body. And from that, one can't deny, and it's an obvious true statement, that without a body you couldn't age. But once we are in the human body, this pain of getting older, and usually it also means getting sick at least to some extent, and very rarely someone gets very old with hardly any sickness, but more commonly you know, as we age there's more sickness. Now that pain could all be avoided by not being reborn in the body. Now in Brahmaloka, the very high heavens, they're just immersed in bliss, they don't have a body. It's just the mind internally unified in rapture and bliss for a long, long time. So if you're asking that question, you know, the reason is that we took up this body. And why do we do that? Because we are attracted and attached to the body. You may not be so happy with your own body when it gets old and sick, but if you watch, I'm not sure what you are into, uh, Justin Bieber, Elvis Presley, any of these really good-looking, young, healthy, then suddenly we are attracted to bodies. This is a big problem. Although we are experiencing how the body is letting us down, we are still attracted to it. And the moment when we die and our the mind kind of separates from the body, at least from this physical body, because of that attraction, we go for a new one. And the whole circle continues. This is why the Buddha addresses the whole thing by overcoming the attachment to the body, overcoming craving tanha. This body we are in right now that cannot be saved. 
that ship is sinking. It's like the Titanic. You can't save that. And even the Buddha couldn't save the body he was walking around. Now that body died 2,500 years ago. We can read about Napavinibbana Sutta. But the mind of the Buddha was already free from any attachment to the body. And once the body was gone, it wouldn't attach to a new body. It would be limitless, free and liberated. So in that sense, we can use it. If people are very healthy and young, they're often increasing their attachment and delight in the body. Whereas if you are getting older and you have pain and sickness, there can be a great opportunity to contemplate that this is the very nature of the body. And all these movie stars and uh, pop stars and models and supermodels will be the same. Maybe exactly the same. And in this way, if we try to overcome the attachment to the body. So the only real solution is to let go of the body. Not in the sense that you neglect your body. No, you, we have a, it's necessary as long as we are alive, you have to feed the body and bathe it and give it all the different medicines and but in terms of the mental attachment, in terms of no identification. We identify so much with the body. And if we do a so-called selfie, what is a selfie? It's an image of your body, ne? It's not an image of your mind, it's just the body. But we call it a selfie because no, there's a self, that's a delusion of self. That's me. My body is me. If your body is you, which body is you? The one you have now or the body when you were 18? You see, the inconsistencies start piling up. It shows that this whole thing that the body is a self and me, and it doesn't really work. Because the body is always changing. It would mean that I'm constantly changing, which is a little bit a safe contradiction for the whole idea of safe. So what we have to work on, on the deep level, the profound level, is the attachment to the body and the identification to the body. Yeah, one here. Humility, yeah, yeah. I don't mean in the sense of like being humble, but I don't mean in the sense of like bragging or putting others down, but more just uh, being comfortable with your place in the world. I have to find myself uh, attracted by things I don't know the origin of, uh, and it makes me question my own sort of achievements or identity or actions. I wanted to know through like what is sort of interpretation. There's a question about humility. Uh, in the Buddhist sense, what is humility? How do we understand that? Um, this is a very important quality. Nivato, low wind in Pali, literally. The literal meaning of nivata, 
you can translate as humility in a low wind, not making much wind, so to speak. Now that's a party term for that. And it is closely related to what we were starting talking about, you know, the delusion of self, entity view, ego, the delusion of I and uh, ownership. And a very common delusion of I is the conceit, now I am better. Humility is kind of the opposite of conceit. The conceit now, is coming back now, to meta and matter to everyone the same. The conceit is the valuing one's own delusion of I, me, mine above others. And the humility can be a great way of um, countering that and weakening that. But one reason that we bow. It's actually fascinating in terms of karma, the Buddha has explained that having a strong conceit, I am better, and being arrogant, haughty, big-headed, that actually leads to a rebirth in a low position. Whereas on the other hand, if we have humility and we respect those who deserve respect, and we lower ourselves, so to speak, intentionally, that leads to a rebirth in a high position, in high society or whatever, rich people. It's quite a fascinating, a karmic connection there. However, ultimately, there are three forms of conceit. Now, one is I'm better. Another one is I'm inferior. And the third one is I'm equal. From my experience now, Australia is really, in particular on the third one, we are all equal. Maybe the country with the strongest kind of philosophy, you know, we are all equal. Cutting down the tall poppies and... But ultimately, you know, all three are delusion. And uh, enlightenment entails seeing through all three forms of conceit and seeing that the whole concept, the whole idea of I and self is mistaken and just a delusion. Now that is the ultimate kind of humility, not so much humility in the sense that I consider myself inferior to others, but humility in the ultimate sense that I understand that uh, I itself is just a delusion. It cannot be found. If you try in a tour, take hold of that delusionary concept of that illusion of self, me, my, I, and entity, you, you cannot really find it. Like what we talked about with the body. And if I am the body, then which body? This one, or when I was 20? If I am my thinking, the which thinking, my thinking is constantly changing. And if you analyze, and you will find anything you try to build your delusion of self on is actually crumbling under your hands the moment you investigate it. Yeah. yeah. Do, you think the, uh, do you think the fundamental I of the subject, do you think that's the soul? The fundamental? 
belongs to fundamental you. So the either that isn't your thinking, that isn't your body. Do you think that in the abstract way that's your soul? Yeah, ultimately, no, you don't find any fundamental I. There is no I. The Buddha didn't quite put it like that. He would put it more like saying, whatever you regard as self or as I will just cause you suffering and will not have you know, these qualities. Whatever you regard as I is ultimately <coughs> illusionary. It's a little bit a different nuance than saying there is no self or there is no I. And also, in, the, in any case, a delusion is there. The illusion is certainly there. But the point is it's an illusion. And if you investigate it, what do you have to look at? What do you use to prop up that delusion? Because you cannot have a sense of I or self without a prop-up. And the five prop-ups the Buddha has given is the form, body, feeling, perception, intention, that's a faculty you know, of volition, will, and consciousness. And ultimately, any delusion of I, me, mine, and self, and entity, is propped up by these five khandhas, or by a combination. But if we investigate, we notice that the pop-up doesn't work. If I consider the body as myself, it's changing, it will not last. And the same with feelings. What the Buddha shows is not so much there's no, no self. If you tell someone straight away there is no I, and the people will usually just feel challenged and reject that. The Buddha's approach is more to show when you regard anything as I, when you prop anything up as yourself, it will ultimately fail and will lead to your disappointment and suffering. Yeah. That's very nice. Though. Yeah, yeah, go, go. Yeah. So that's true. How does reincarnation work? So you said that if we shift humility from like a lower status position, mm -hmm. and then we're reborn into like a position with more influence over others, uh, in that instance, who, what exactly is getting reincarnated into? So how does reincarnation work if ultimately I and self is a delusion? It doesn't work. It doesn't work because if I, me, mine and self is understood as a delusion, you will not be reborn. So you need the delusion of I for the whole thing to work. That's correct, yeah. And as long, if, if that is completely gone, if the delusion of I is gone, then there is no more rebirth. The process will not work anymore. It's a necessary condition for rebirth to have that delusion. Any others? It became quite lively with your good question to start off with. I hope I didn't frighten you too much with hell and things. It's not so popular. Yeah, yeah, please.
really interesting question here. Someone is asking if a loved one passes away, and it's basically for everyone, not only loved ones, and anyone passing away. Um, and we are making good karma on their behalf, in particular the first 10 days. Where are they actually, and can they still hear us, and what is going on during that period? Uh, I don't have the psychic powers to see that, so I can't really tell you that with complete certainty and according to my own direct knowledge. But from what I pick up and what one can read about and what some of the outstanding Ajans describe, uh, they often do have the ability to hear you or to be aware how you're feeling. So it's very important not to haggle about the inhabitants <laughs> because that can create an obstruction for them. So you want to make the good karma to support them, give them an upgrade to business class, so to speak. So a simile I always give for that one. On their journey to the next rebirth, you give them an upgrade by sharing merits. But you also want to support them by not creating any uh, doubt or regrets or obstruction in their mind. And if it's a loved one and you are really overwhelmed and really sad, and really knocked out and get depressed, that can actually be very difficult for them. And for example, if a parent passes away, they're usually so attached to the children, and if they see the child now in deep grief, they want to help, but they can't, because they're out of the body, the child can't even see them anymore, and they have no choice, they have to move on. And uh, that means that you're actually doing a good service if you can let go and if you can come out of your grief. It's actually better for the departed one. You can just imagine what would you feel like. Imagine you are the one, you die, and now you're out of the body, and what would you feel like? And the first thing to consider is no, you don't really change. Your mind hasn't really changed. What you liked before, what you're attached to, what are your desires, you know, that is not wiped out by the fact of, of death because it's all in the mind. So the people who are really important for you is exactly the same people. And after they pass away, you know, they may be able to see what they are thinking. This is quite normal for spirits. Now for human beings, that looks quite miraculous. For spirits, it's quite normal. So the kind of stuff you're thinking is really important in this time. It's not necessarily 10 days. The number of days differs in different traditions. And I think it will depend a little bit on the person and the circumstance. And if someone is, a, again, a real saint, a real angel already in this life, they may get reborn straight in heaven. If someone is a real evil demon, they will just drop to hell straight away. If it's more in between, then depending on circumstance, it may take a few days, a few weeks. So it's good not to support them in that time by sharing merits, but also how you are thinking because they may pick up on that. <laughs> Did you recently lose anyone? Or? Oh, how long ago? Um, 
month. There's a big fallacy you know, often in our modern culture, the idea is if I love someone a lot, then I will be really sad when I lose them. From that follows, the sad I am, the more I show how much I love them. But that is actually a fallacy, because you know, whichever person you lost there, would they rather want you to be happy or would they want you to be depressed and sad? They would want you to be happy. No? So by going down and getting more and more sad, we are actually doing a disservice to the departed one. That's a very important consideration. And we should rather express our love and affection by letting go. Letting go doesn't mean forgetting. That's another important one. Sometimes people think when monks talk about letting go, it means no, you just don't care anymore. That's not the case. The Buddha encourages to remember and to continue sharing merits over the years. But letting go in the sense of understanding impermanence. And then you're doing actually a better service to the departed one. Okay, I shouldn't hold you too long. If there's any other urgent question, I'm happy to be still here, but I want to give an opportunity to everyone to go to the bathroom that you don't feel it's like hell coming to Damagiri. Monk wouldn't let us go anymore. And Anamodana for your interest and patience.